Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, you're you're on. So, Sarah, you uh, foolishly parted with money, like actual money, real money, <laughs> money that you could have used to buy pizza. And instead, yeah, priorities. you foolishly gave it to me with the idea to hear me make whiny sounds about things that you point at. And so, that you have some knowledge I can gain. I don't well, think you'll be whiny. Oh, I, 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 I've already read some of your stuff and, uh, you showed me a video ahead of time and I, and I think I already have lots of things to say that you're probably not going to like. This is, so usually when I tell people do not hire me as a consultant because I will only make you cry. And so, okay. uh, where are my tissues? I need my tissues. <laughs> do you have any idea what you're getting into by doing this? No, this is really spur of the moment. Okay. Um, honestly, I'm new to permies and I like looked at your bio, but I'm like, oh, master gardener and permaculture, you know, however many plus years. And I'm like, it was just like, let me do it. Let me see what this guy has to say. So, so, um, uh, you live in a land which I heard described in an audiobook as Florida. And so I, I just thought that pronunciation was hilarious. So I, I want to say it all the time now. Florida. But you is live in for Florida. flower? Florida? Like that? Or is that like? I have no idea. Okay. I don't know so what Trump accent. Country is my accent. Like, do I sound like I say Florida? Florida. So I, I don't know. See, now I, I'm told that my accent comes from Northeastern Oregon, which is made Apparently the accent that they have there came from when they, when they tried to build the railroad, they, uh, apparently couldn't get Chinese people like other railroads of the mm-hmm. era. So they got the next best thing, which was people from the south. People from where? <laughs> from the south. The south, so, yeah. So my, under- <laughs> my understanding is, is apparently my dialect is based on that. So I, I don't, so therefore if you're from the south, I don't, and I, there's so much I don't know about all of those things, but yeah. leaving that aside, um, I, I, I discourage people from hiring me as a consultant because, um, I kind of feel like the stuff I have to say is going to be frustrating. The next thing is, is that because you're in Florida, Florida, then, um, uh, I'm a cold climate person. And, right. and so my knowledge of doing things in warmer climates has come from just hearing other people talk. So, uh, down in Florida is going to be Alexander Ojeda and I've talked to him at great length while we made the permaculture planning cards. And, cool. uh, no direct experience by, experience by proxy. Yes. So Willie Smith, Jeff Lawton, uh, and, and now, um, I'm doing a lot of work on video with um these two guys that are down in Colombia the Bernal brothers and so i and i get to hear their stories and they've shown me some pictures of their stuff and we've talked about it a bit 
But the, the key is, is that there's going to be a lot of species of growies that I am just simply not familiar with. Because aren't you in like zone nine or something? Yeah, it's 9B. But, you know, I was just thinking recently, I'm like, do you think that we're all going to have to like upgrade our zones? Like, because this is supposed to be subtropical, but I swear I live in the tropics. So I'm like, you know, with climate change, do you think we're going to have to ever make any adjustments? <laughs> I I generally try to avoid talking about climate change. And, yeah, okay. um, and I think I think the reason is, is that because my position on climate change is that anybody who states that this is that this is all fact, I think that's where you've, you've left science behind, whether you're saying for or against. And that uh, because climate climate change is dependent upon the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And it's kind of hard to hold a ruler up to it. It's invisible right. stuff. So we're kind and of it's fluid. Yeah, we're I kind of it. dependent on those uh, these other people measuring it on our behest and then telling us the numbers from the past are all accurate. So I think we should. I think a key component for all science is to have doubt. We have a lot of doubt shaming around a lot of stuff, and I kind of mm-hmm. feel like, oh, I just don't want to get into it. In the meantime, yeah, I, I just mean like, strictly because of the heat. <laughs> No, 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 no. Very good point. Like, that's one thing I can actually tell barometer-wise, you know. I can tell you that here in the Missoula, Montana area, that it used to be that we had a 90-day growing season, that the average last frost date was June 1st, and the Mm -hmm. average first frost date was September 1st. And now we generally embrace that the average last frost date is around May 10th, and the average first frost date is around September 20th. That's that's different. And it's like, well, well why? Right. <laughs> well, I think that it's probably because there's probably at least a little bit of truth in that and that whole thing about global warming and climate change. Now, of course, it's not so much global warming. It's 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 uh, climate weirdening is is what's kind of being suggested. Some places will actually get even colder, but the thing well, is that I think that you're saying, is it going to be even hotter where yeah. you are? And should you be thinking of, like, making decisions based on it being tropical rather than subtropical? And, and I'm familiar with, you know, the plants um, in this area. But honestly, like, I do want to get into growing medicinal herbs. And I feel like they don't need to just be natives, of course, you know, Florida natives. So, <clears throat> There are a lot that are grown, you know, throughout the U.S. Okay. So to get in different climates. To get some. I just need to make a microclimate within this area for those species. Okay. To get some foundation, my guess is is that you've not listened to any of my podcasts. Is that fair? Oh, and now it looks like you just got stuck. Oh no, it froze. Yeah. Have you listened to any of my podcasts? Hold on one second. It just froze. Okay. It looks like it's working okay now. I'm trying to turn the volume up. (laughs) (laughs) You can edit that, right? Um, My podcast, I don't edit anything. Uh, I'm too lazy for that. Okay. It's unfrozen. I can hear you, and I've got the volume up. Okay. The the chickens are kind of loud. Okay. Have you listened to any of my podcasts? No, not yet. Okay. And have you read any of my books? 
No, not yet. Okay. All right. No, no, no. That's all fair. It's all, all fine. Um, and of course you're in a warm climate. I'm a, I'm a cold climate guy, but we will make the best of it. Okay. And, sounds- all right. Now, um, uh, one of the things that you mentioned was, uh, how you're doing a bunch of stuff with mulching with cardboard. And, yeah. um, and I want to say that most permaculture people believe that that is an, an excellent practice. Now I do got to say that if you're going to do it, and I'm, in fact, I'm going to relay a little, a quick little story. And there, there was a time when I was standing in somebody's garden in the Seattle area. And it was in a very rainforesty area. It was like a lot of rain fell there. Mm-hmm. And there was this apple tree. I believe it was an apple tree. I'm going to say it's an apple tree. But there was this fruit tree. It was very sad. And so she asked me, why is this tree so sad? And it looked like there was a systemic problem. The whole tree was sad. The leaf count was low. The tree just looked kind of pathetic. But it was like obviously like a 25-year-old tree. And it's like, wow, um, everything around it looks very healthy. Nothing was growing underneath it. And so I said, let's look at the soil. So we got a digging fork and we hit the soil and it kind of went sunk, just stopped right on top <laughs> of the soil. Well, it turned out that there was layers upon layers of newspaper. So five years earlier, this woman had read an article about how newspaper is great for weed control in your garden, and it'll just simply break down. Well, she's in the break-it-down capital of maybe not the world, maybe not as break-it-down as a place that's tropical or subtropical. But being in an area that's wetter, like twice as much rainfall as Seattle, this is this is a place where there's a lot of rot, a lot of mold, a lot of that kind of thing. So, so it's like this is, it's going to break down more here than anywhere. <clears throat> now, so she had read this article. So she laid down a bunch of newspaper, big gobs of newspaper. And as we cleared away the bits of mulch and dirt on the top, we could read the paper and it's five <laughs> years old and we're reading the top of the paper. No so, break it. So, um, a couple of days later, I'm, um, on a panel and we're sitting in front of a group of like 60 people and there's me and like three other permaculture people. And I'm telling this story and the guy next to me who I'm going to, I'm going to say his name because he's now a famous author, Dave Bainline. He's actually my former housemate. <laughs> Dave Bainline said, well, it's obvious. Everybody knows that you need to go through and punch holes in the newspaper or the cardboard or it won't work. And I'm kind of thinking like, A, it's not obvious because clearly this woman did not do that. And, and B, I've, I've, I've seen this problem happen many times. And C, I've never seen anybody punch holes in their cardboard or newspaper. Right. I never saw that on anybody else. <laughs> right. So I guess the, so there's there's that whole thing. If, if you're going to do it, if you're going to use the cardboard, then um, or possibly newspaper, um, then you might want to punch holes in it. Okay. That said, now I'm going to go into a whole new level 
This is this is the make you cry part of the program. <laughs> I, I, I want to suggest that you not use cardboard or newspaper in your horticultural endeavors. And usually when I say that, the next thing people say is like, yeah, but all the ink is made out of soy. And that's a whole other conversation for another day. I am less. No, my question is like, oh, so you want me to till? <laughs> oh, you want me to oh. the carbon? <laughs> oh, 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 beautiful topic. Oh, I want to talk about that too. But here, let me finish pooping all over your cardboard okay. for just a second. And it's not even that big video. Go ahead. All right. So cardboard, there's, there's two ways to make cardboard. The expensive way, which is where you just kind of take woody bits and you mash it all up, and you mash it enough, and then uh, it, you can make cardboard out of that, out of just, just mashed up woody bits and water. You can make cardboard that way. Or there's the cheap way where you don't mash it up quite as much, but you stick in uh, a bunch of chemicals to kind of help mash it up. And then you add some glue to help kind of hold it all together. Mm. Which way do you suppose most cardboard is made? The, the improper way. The, yeah. the cheaper way, which has more toxins in it. And as it breaks down, it, it, uh, the toxins get even worse. Sometimes when you, like when funguses get involved and it breaks down, the toxins are eliminated. And it's like in other times when it breaks down, the toxins can get worse. And sometimes there's heavy metals, in which case the toxins don't break down at all. It mm. turns out that cardboard's a little bit of a shitstorm. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah. And, and when you're in Florida, then a big part of what's going to happen is, is that um, things are going to grow so amazingly well. Like everything kind of wants to grow, and it's a matter of like, but I want the pineapple to grow and be happy. But I want this other stuff to not grow. Like that, that grows really good, but it is of no value to me. And I want to discourage that other stuff. I want the things I want. So everything kind of wants to turn into a bit of a jungle. Everything mm -hmm. wants to kind of boom, go up into the air and it becomes something where you need a machete to work through it. And so yeah. then it's kind of like you got to choose which thing is the thing that's going to be in your jungle. Now, <clears throat> cardboard or a mulch of some kind is going to be just absolutely amazing at plopping down on the things that you don't want. Then, then those things become sad and eventually peter out. But if you don't, if you plop it down in such a way that it's not on the things you want to grow, those things then become very happy and they grow very large. And um, so you have set your precedent. Now, the thing is, is that you're like, okay, that's what I want to do. One of the tools that permaculture people use is chop and drop. So you've got this jungle of stuff growing. Now, rather than driving all the way over there to Nya to go get your cardboard and drive it all the way back to Nya and then place it, and then plus there's going to be a little bit of packing it to the car and packing it from the car to where you want it, we have this thing called chop and drop where you basically take a sickle or whatever is your favorite choppity tool and you head on out to uh, where there are these problem plants and you whacky whack, whack, whack. And then usually you take this big gob of stuff you just whacked and you plop it down on top of uh, where it used to be. 
You've effectively. Well, I have tons of that. I have tons of palm uh, palm trees and saw palm meadows. That would be my chop and drop material and little shrub oaks and stuff like that. <laughs> so. so now let's suppose that if you were to take, if you were to go choppity, 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 chop, and you had, I don't know, uh, I'm going to say 20 square feet where you went choppity, 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 chop, and then you laid it all down and it was now an inch thick. But what would happen is, is that all of that stuff that you want to go away will now just grow up in between all the stuff you just chopped and it's back. And so the thing that I propose is that you pick, like, let's say six square feet out of that 20 square feet that you hate the most, and that it ends up with three and a half inches of mulch on it. And the things below it can't get through all of that mulch. So you still have this, um, let's see, I'm trying to say 20 and 6. So that leaves 24 square feet. So I hope my math is right. No, no, 14 square feet. You have 14 square feet that now have no mulch on them, and it's going to grow back. But you have 6 square feet that have so much mulch on it that that stuff is going to die. And that's going to become incredibly rich soil as all that mulch breaks down. So later I propose that you're going to take that remaining 14 square feet and do the same thing again. You're going to chop it and then for a third of it, you're going to drop it. And okay. then, and so you're going to have the law of diminishing returns. Okay. There's, I'm going to, let's call that, I'm going to call it plan A, chop and drop. I, I think that that's so. Granted, um, uh, you are going to make your own choices, and one of those choices might be that you want to keep going and getting this cardboard. And it's like I can't stop yet, and you get to you get to take everything I say and decide what you're going to keep and what you're going to flush down the toilet. That's that's up to you to decide. But you mentioned the cardboard, and so then I wanted so it, so it pushes one of my buttons, and I'm going to say. <laughs> Uh, I, I give you my cardboard thing. And then the next thing is, is it's like, what other options do you have? And so is it possible to get perhaps some organic hay? Um, organic from around here? I don't know. I I, I mean, I have to research, obviously, but typically what, I, what you get is not, I don't think. Okay. What I heard you just say is maybe. And, um, and, and uh, I also heard you say as subtext, why would I care whether it's organic or not? And yeah. no, no. Well, because any hay that is not organic has been treated with persistent herbicides. And that mm -hmm. means that and so the persistent herbicides have a half-life of 7 to 11 years. So if you put it on your growies or near your growies, your growies will all die which is kind of like, as a gardener, not the effect we're really looking for. However... We're trying to do all organic, so I hear you. Yes! Okay. <laughs> so um, it sounds like finding organic hay might be a pain in the ass, not worth the effort. But I'm trying to propose that, and granted, it would cost money, whereas you're probably getting the cardboard for free. 
Yeah, but I'm also driving up and down the road stealing cardboard out of recycling cans every Wednesday. So it's <laughs> times <laughs> money, you know, times money as well. So Fair. and how long will it take me to get enough cardboard to do what I need? So it's a lot of times it's easier just to buy. Yeah. Do you have something like a wheelbarrow or a gardening cart? I have a cart that goes on the back of the lawn tractor. Okay. Ooh, beautiful. Now. How many acres do you have? Because you have more than one. I have eight, eight, but an acre and a half is in the creek. <clears throat> uh-huh. And really, I mean, I'm going to guess I have two acres cleared, and then the other remaining is like thick, you know, oh. trees, understory, thicket. I mean, it's just like, you know, oh. like you would walk into any Florida forest. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's packed to the gills with yeah. material that's begging to be your next mulch. Probably. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that's what I heard you just say. It's the yes. subtext. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's saying, make me into mulch, please. So, Probably. So right on your property, you have a 100 times more mulch than you could possibly bring back in your car with cardboard. And it's higher quality. It's it's truly organic. Doesn't sure. contain any of the um, different kinds of gunk or toxins that will be in the cardboard. None of that. It's super duper. So it doesn't have to be a certain chop and drop material like I know everybody uses, like comfrey and um, high nitrogen fixers. Is that the correct? Correct. Um, what a beautiful question. What a perfect question. So, like, our palm, palm meadow, you know, uh, palm fronds going to be? Well, That's any wood because I've, eventually it all drops and becomes mulch in a natural forest. So. so I'm a cold climate person. So I would, to answer your question, I would say there are some things I would choose to never use as a mulch, and that would include cedar trees. Mm-hmm. Cedar trees contain four different kinds of natural herbicides. And so if you go to a cedar grove, you'll oftentimes find that there's nothing growing in the cedar grove besides cedar trees. And so the cedar tree is considered to be allelopathic. Now, when you go out into your jungle, is it a diverse jungle? Is there, like, stuff growing? Like, is there anything that grows out there in a monocrop and nothing else seems to want to grow next to it? No. So it's probably okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, like, packed in whatever can grow next to its buddy will. Okay. Okay. So I'm concerned up here in a northern climate about some species that are allelopathic, meaning that they're going to exude something from the plant matter, which could possibly include the decaying plant matter, which is the case with cedar, that's going to make my growies sad. And, and black walnut and sunflower, right? I know those now, two. Oh, good. So, so black <laughs> walnut exudes juglans from its roots, but does it exude juglans from decaying plant matter? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. But i I'd be a little nervous. Maybe I'd try some experiments. Okay. Mm-hmm. The moral of the story is, is that I think you're going to be okay. Okay. But, but I'm not yeah. familiar with your plants. 
down in the south like that. So you're in a way you're on your own, or maybe you'll want to visit with some people that know more about your species than I do. But um, <clears throat> for the most part, I would say that if I'm down on your property and I'm a cold climate doofus, then I'm probably going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to grab all that stuff from over there, and I'm going to bring it over here and lay it down three to eight inches thick to be a mulch, and it's going to make the most magnificent soil here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, <clears throat> so have I have I pooped all over your cardboard ideas? Sufficient? Not at all. No, you're <laughs> no, this is what I wanted. Yeah, okay. no, so the cardboard wasn't even, like, a huge thing. It was just, like, one of those first steps to start killing the killing the grass underneath. Now, something that's new to my pod people, that is one of the questions that you asked, was about what can I do with this brackish water that I have? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, so, and I have another idea too. I wanted to talk to you about as well. Ooh, hold that with, thought. With that in mind, just before we get off that topic, something else I thought of. I first of all, I I want to I want to point out to people who might not know, brackish water is going to be fresh water that's not exactly fresh. It's unfresh, meaning that ocean water has kind of come up for a visit. And mixed with the fresh water, and now the fresh water is not as fresh as it could be, which kind of tells us that you live in a place, when you talk about global warming, (laughs) your real estate might be losing value in the next 10 or 20 years, depending on how things go (coughs) with global warming. Um, Because right now, you're kind of at sea level, kind of, maybe maybe four or five feet higher. Six foot above. Six foot above sea level. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that could, that number might shrink <laughs> over the next few decades. And, uh, so the, the thing is, is at high tide, then the freshwater that's next to you somehow magically and mysteriously gets a little higher up. Fair? Yes. I have a, I have a probably, well, I think it's longer than a six-hour tidal window. Um, I yeah, I think it's like six to eight. It's uh, okay. the tidal the tides is it twelve hours or six hours normally? I forget if it's two a day, two high tides, two low tides, and that's six hours in between. You know what? I don't live on the coast. So I'm not really sure, but I I do know <laughs> that you usually get two high tides and two low tides a day. But it so varies a little a, bit based yeah, upon the moon and stuff. So, yeah, I think my my tide's a little slower than the normal ocean tide. Okay, okay. So um, uh, how much precipitation do you get uh, in a year? Ooh, that I don't know. We've had lots of rain. Well, of course, it's like every day at 2 o'clock it rains in Florida. Um, you know, it's like set your clock by it, and we get – you know, probably a couple inches of rain. Um, so we've had a really rainy summer, but I, I don't know the exact annual. I can probably look it up on my phone. Okay. All right. Now, I've been to Florida a couple of times, and um, I remember getting on a plane and then uh, uh, 
going to Florida, and then when I get off the plane, my first thought is, is how how are we expected to breathe this air? Um, <laughs> and, and it's like it's bizarre how thick the air is, how humid the air is, and it's it takes a few minutes to kind of adjust. To like, yes. oh wow, I'm, you know, this is going to take some work to suck this in. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing I thought was amazing is uh, the amount of dew in the morning. Like uh, uh, when I was there, I remember getting a rental car and then going out in the morning to where the rental car is, and it's like it's amazing how much dew will puddle onto a car, yeah. and it's like that is. That is amazing. I've never seen it. And it's like this happens every day. Mm-hmm. So lots of moisture. And then, of course, you know, because my first thought is, is like, woohoo, what can we do to play with this water that you have? And, <laughs> and it's like uh, uh, the salt is a bit of an issue. But it's kind of like, well, it's salty-esque. It's not. No, purely salt. It's like, uh, it's, it's, uh, so maybe there's something that can be done. My, my first thought is, is I wonder if she can do a chinampa. Now, do you know what it's? I don't know. No. Okay. All right. All right. So a chinampa is going to be like, you go out to where your water is and then you just take all this brush. So branchy bits, and you make a pile on the edge of the water that's like, let's say, six feet tall of brushy bits. And then you get on top of the pile, and you stomp, 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 stomp it down. And then, and then now, you, while standing on your, your pile of stomped brushy bits, you get more brushy bits, and you throw them a little ways out there. So what you're doing is you're kind of making this, this path out under the water made out of brushy bits. I'm making a dock out there. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. A dock. And it's going to be about two feet above the high tide line. Now, um, so like, let's suppose you did this and it went out like, I don't know, 10 feet out into the water. And then you started uh, laying some dirt in the middle of your path that's out on these brushy bits. So uh, then you can start growing stuff in that. That would be a chinampa. Um, now, if that's it was... That was exactly what I was wanting to ask was seaweed. Is there any way to grow seaweed in brackish water? And I know there's freshwater seaweed and, you know, the saltwater seaweed, but is there a type of seaweed that could grow in a half and half? I mean, I know algae does great out there, but yeah, so that was what I was curious about, like growing like seaweed on like, um, you know how they do like vetiver on the platforms and let the roots go through like some kind of like, I don't know, reverse method or something. That I don't know. I'm not very familiar with seaweed. And so yeah. chinampas are a thing that's going to be done with fresh water, like where you've got a swamp or you've got a, a pond or or something like that. And the thing, just to wrap up, I'm not sure how well this would work 
with the, the, uh, salty water, the brackish water. Um, it would be something where it could be a, a possible experiment. I think you would be far better off trying to do something more on your property that you haven't tapped into yet. Like guys, cause currently mm-hmm. you've got two acres that are usable. Right. And, and, and you could expand to use the full eight acres in time. So you might, you might add a quarter of an acre or a half an acre each year. And that's kind of like, well, what might you do with that? Now I can say <clears throat> that for a, a lot of people, um, that, that live in a subtropical or tropical climate that they're going to make, uh, heavy use of swales. Now your property is very flat. Is that accurate? Um, there's a slight, I mean, no, I wouldn't say it's completely flat. So like down by the water is sea level. Then you get up to the house about an acre up and that's six feet. And then if I were to go another acre up, that would be 20 feet. So it's, it does go down, you know, it does have a pitch. Okay. Okay. It's not huge. It's, I mean, it's, you know, slowly, I mean. So now in, in subtropical and tropical climates, one of the most powerful tools in your arsenal is the swale. But it okay. does require some slope to the land, which it sounds like you have at least a little bit of slope. A little, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Now, um, if you were, like, where you're at right now, if you were to dig a hole six feet deep, you would probably find your water table. Mm-hmm. And it would probably be fresh water because there's going to be a freshwater lens before you get to a saltwater lens. Okay. Yeah, probably right. Okay. All right. You haven't, I mean, you live in the country. Are you on city water or do you have a well? No, I have a well. How deep is your well? Do you know? I, it's not artisanal, but um, I don't know. Okay. All right. But it's so, really good water. Like I don't have to do any any treatment to it. Oh, lovely, lovely. Okay, probably not terribly deep. Is is just a guess because I would imagine where you are, if you got terribly deep, it would probably become salty. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. All right, I'm going to set that aside. Let's talk about the mighty power of the swale for you. Okay. So, like. Uh, basically the idea is, is that on somewhere, somewhere on your property, if I say on contour, do you know what that means? No. No. Okay. Do you know what a contour line is or? A curved line. Okay. It's a curved line. Do you know what the curved line represents? An angle? No, I don't. No. I'm guessing. Okay. So basically the idea is, is that you're going to have this perfectly level space. So like if you were to, um, make a line on your property, like you were going to put, uh, you went out and you bought 100 stakes, like those little wooden stakes uh-huh. you know, for when the vampires come. <clears throat> they right. say Home Depot. Because you guys have such a vampire problem down there in Florida. And so you could go and get a hundred wooden stakes and then you could put one in the ground and then there's ways to find out where is 
another place that's 10 feet away that's the exact same elevation. And so, and then you'll put another stick in the ground. Whereas if you were to move the stake a little bit uphill or a little bit downhill, it won't be at the exact same elevation. So there's ways that we can do this, and um, and we could talk about that at great length, um, but uh, let's leave that aside for now. Then you, you take all 100 stakes, and all 100 of them are at the exact same elevation. It'll end up probably being a kind of a curvy line that these 100 stakes will make. Mm-hmm. That is referred to as being, those 100 stakes would be on contour. They're all mm-hmm. at the exact same elevation. So then if you were to make a ditch, let's say you made a ditch that's two feet wide and two feet deep, and um, and then you filled your ditch on one end with water, the ditch would fill up and wouldn't spill out anywhere because everything is exactly the same elevation. Everything is on contour. And so basically what you have done is you have made a silly, long, curvy pond that's two feet (laughs) wide. And um, you might be thinking, like, what is the point of this ridiculousness? To swim in. That's my backyard pool. You might want to make it a little wider than two feet. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to swim in. But fair enough. Yes, you've made a backyard pool. Now, normally what people do is when they dig this swale, they dig it out of the center of where all these um, wooden stakes are, and they plop the material down on the downhill side. So they kind of make this lump. So on one side... There's the ditch, and on the other side is this lump. Now, you want to swim in this, so let's make it six feet wide and six feet deep because you know what you need in Florida is a nice workout with a shovel. So now you can swim in it. Unfortunately, when we made this, because it's a swale and not a ditch, we didn't exactly seal it well. So the water that comes in to fill it actually kind of leaks out. So when you have your rain event, it sort of fills up, and then it sort of leaks out. But it turns out that all that stuff on the downhill side gets soggier. Because now this is a great time to ask, do you know what kind of soil do you have? Is it clay-like? Or is it probably straight sand. <laughs> sand, okay. Yeah. So then what's going to happen is, <clears throat> when you get a big rain event, it's not like suddenly you have all these little tiny creeks running through your property heading towards the um, the, the brackish water. Instead, right. you have this big rain event, and everything seems the same as it normally does. It seeps right into the ground. <laughs> it just goes straight into the ground. Okay. Yeah. And it's going to later be your drinking water for your very fine drinking water. All good. All lovely. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how much, how much, um, value a swale will bring to you. Um, because usually what happens is, is that water, as it travels downhill, it's running on the surface, but you're mm-hmm. not, and then it's running off of your property. 
No, I think I need like straight collection devices coming from this guy and just like, yeah, to be able to keep it contained and then, yeah, not have it absorb right into the ground. I'm thinking that's probably oh. the better method out here. But now it, it sounds like it rains every day. It does. And so you probably don't have too much trouble with things getting dry and crispy. Uh, certain areas where it's direct sun, it does, like I do have to still water, you know, especially other times of the year besides summer. Um, just because it's like 90 plus degrees out, you know. Um, I had an avocado tree that died because it was in direct sun. And that's why I was wondering about the whole tropics, you know, <laughs> like the zones changing because, you know, I read that um, avocados might need part shade if it is, you know, somewhere that gets, you know, this hot of sun all day long for, you know, eight hours plus. Okay. All right. So it's possible that your avocado tree, which I've never grown an avocado tree because I think that they require something like if it freezes just a little bit, they're yeah. okay with that. But um, I think where, like here in Montana, they're not okay with that. And so, <laughs> like, it's too cold for an avocado. Right. So, um, but. No, I have six of them, and that was the only one that was, like, really direct sun for the most part, and it did. It just didn't get enough water, probably. Like, And it looks like you have some palm tree-looking things in the background. Tons of palm trees here. All right. All right. There they all are. Look at those. Okay. Yep. So that, they look very <laughs> palm tree-esque. Yeah, the cleared area, and then... Back over that way. I don't know if you can tell. It's just like super thick back there. Okay. Yeah, and that's the the super thick area is the area that you have not yet touched. Drop and drop area. No. Right, right. That's that's your your uh, area that has lovely mulch supplies. Yes. Okay. All right. So. Um, <clears throat> All right, I'm going to – here is part of what I'm thinking is that um, as a general rule of – how about wind? Let's talk about wind. Do you get much wind? I mean, it doesn't look like there's much wind right now. I have a really good wind break with the four acres on the front. Yeah, so not a lot of wind issues. Um, I would say when you make a uh, – because the, the primary idea with the swale – is that you've got your water running downhill and off of your property. But if you make a swale, the water gets caught in the swale, and then um, it'll fill up, and then it'll slowly leak out, generally downhill. And so you, you've slowed the water down. But it sounds to me like, for the most part, that's not your problem. You've got plenty of water, so you don't need that. Now, the next thing that a swale does is it creates microclimates. So whether you're going to do a swale or a hubu culture or stuff like that, you're going to add texture to the landscape, lumps and bumps and lines of raised material, which is going to be good for um, making it so some spots are a little cooler and some spots are a little warmer. Now, 
I imagine you would like to have some spots that are a little cooler. Um, well, I have all this shaded tree area. Um, so honestly, I think my, I know I told you that about the avocado, but, um, I think, you know, finding things that are going to grow in part shade and shade are going to be, you know, kind of tricky. That's why I was wondering, could I use that whole area out front that's full sun, even though it's like right in front of the house and it's the kind of roundabout area I use, you know, should that be turned into, I guess, a big food forest because it's got the one of the areas with the most sun all day. The rest of the backyard is kind of part shade because of all the oaks and palm trees you just saw. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> I, um, I mean, another thing is, is that where you are, you're closer to the equator than I am. So in summer, I'm going to have these, uh, like 16 to 18 hour long days. And in winter, my days are going to be more like six hours long. And whereas yours are going to be closer to 12 hours long all year round, maybe a little bit longer in the summer. (laughs) Yeah. Winter might be 10. Yeah. And summer might be 14. It's just that. Yeah, and so in the middle of – and then do you have frost ever where you are? Uh, Really rare. Like we got maybe two weeks where it got, you know, below 40 for like a day or two here and there. It was a very mild winter. Okay, okay. So it might be once every five years that you'll see a temperature that drops below freezing. And you'll get a frost. Is that accurate? I'm guessing. Yeah. And if we do get it below, I mean, it's like for a day or two. It's not like anything prolonged. Right. Right. It just barely touches freezing for Mm -hmm. maybe even just an hour. And then it warms up again. Am I? So, okay. All right. Um, in, in which case it's kind of like, uh, uh, all right. So this is, this is, uh, this, the system that we're working with. I, I kind of feel like, um, if you were to plant stuff in full sun, there are some plants, maybe about a third of your typical food plants, your gardening plants, um, that would be like all day sun is great. Cause I imagine another thing is, is that while it's humid, it probably never gets over 95 degrees. My- no, it's typically, well, I mean, the heat index, yeah, it gets a lot higher with the humidity, but no, like, it probably doesn't get over 95. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking that if you have a, a regular garden and it's well mulched and stuff like that, It'll probably, some plants are going to just be like, oh, I'll take all the sun that you can give me. But about two-thirds of our plants that we like to grow in a garden prefer a little shade. Like, they actually perform better with four hours of direct light than with 12 hours of direct light. And if it's going to rain every day, I think part of your day every day is going to be cloudy. 
Uh, yeah, we typically have clouds, but it's really the the trees create like a lot of shade, and then like mid afternoon the clouds will roll through. So it's probably like half the day it gets cloudy. Okay. All right. So your shade-loving plants might actually do okay out in the full sun because they're only getting a half a day of sun anyway Mm -hmm. most of the time, which kind of makes me think, I wonder what the richer story is with that avocado tree that died. That is interesting, sir. I don't know. I think maybe I just – well, it's by a pawpaw, actually, too. It's not that close to a pawpaw, but isn't pawpaws allopathic as well? That I have never heard but of I that. Thought, I thought I'd put it far enough away. Okay. Um, yeah, I think literally I just didn't water it enough when I put it right in. <laughs> oh. I guess it's... You didn't water it enough. So you you were watering it. I was. I was giving it water every few days. Mm-hmm. Okay, fascinating. Um, but now the other avocado trees, did they get water? <laughs> they got water every, yeah, about the same time frame. Okay. But they're just all in, like, a lot more shade than that one was. It got, like, really bright morning sun, like, for, um, you know, a lot more than the other ones did. But if it rains every day... Why would every you want to? Okay, if it rains every afternoon, uh-huh. why would you want to water the avocado? Well, I thought that you always have new stuff that you put in the ground. You have to um, make sure it's well watered. Oh, so you planted like six avocado trees in six different places. Yeah. And there was this one that was the only one in direct sun, and it became sad and it died. Yeah. Okay. It like dried up brown quick. Yeah. All right. It didn't make it. Okay. All right. Now, did you mulch all these avocado trees? I did with um, oak leaves. Mm, Oak leaves. And magnolia leaves. Do you know what kind of oak? Um, Live oaks. Okay. Mm. Southern live oaks. I am am not certain, but I do think that a lot of oaks, uh, like the leaves of oaks, can be problematic. But I'm not certain about that. It's been I would I would feel the urge to go look it up. Um, okay. I haven't done a lot with oaks, and so um, but I do seem to recall that the leaves of oaks could possibly be toxic, like naturally so, and um, so Allie will pat. But I'm not certain about that. Okay. Um, and so I would um, with it, take that with a grain of salt. Um, okay. But it does seem like, and then also, I have never grown a citrus tree. But my understanding is is that citrus trees love to grow in gravel. They don't like uh, a soil that has a lot of organic matter to it. Not sure what the story is with avocados, uh, because I've never grown an avocado either. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wonder if avocados love uh, a good organic mulch or if they prefer an inorganic mulch, which would be like rocks. Right. And so, um, you know, what would be the kind of of uh, soil that an avocado would love? All right. Setting that aside. The thing is, is that I kind of wonder 
Now, granted, when you've got a brand new plant, and you're trying to get it established, and it's a transplant. Um, and I would, I even kind of wondered, does an avocado have a tap root? Um, which it seems like. I think it does. Ooh, ooh. So, um, now I wonder if you can get an avocado pit, which I know that you can because I think every, uh, eight year old in the northern climates will get an <laughs> avocado and you stick the little toothpicks in it and you put it in a little bit of water and then out comes this lovely taproot looking thing and then you start to get this plant growing in your house which eventually you will kill one way or another but <laughs> it seems like you on the other hand could basically take avocado pits and just start sticking them in the ground all over the place probably and, <laughs> and then their taproot will eventually find water down below and um uh, and they'll be perfectly happy without any irrigation ever. Because whenever you transplant anything with a taproot, you lose the taproot. Mm. So that means your transplanted avocados lost their taproot. And so, um, that's kind of a bummer. I, yeah. I, I kind of, now I've never attempted, of course, to, um, grow an avocado here. I, I'm, I'm not sure what you get when you plant an avocado. Like, is, is an avocado, like if you plant an avocado pit and then a tree forms, is the... It's I think. <clears throat> or it, it takes, uh, you have to have, you know, the A and the B to crossbreed to get the fruit. These were grafted from a farm um, to where they'll grow, basically, fruit, you know. Right. Um, pretty quick so so there's a lot of information like that that people say about apples which turns out to be not true and so i kind of wonder if the stuff that they say about avocados might be also not true so you um, don't ruin the avocado industry and we all grow our own <laughs> something like that we just start taking all these pits from the avocados, we we went to the store, we got some avocados, we took the pits, we just started sticking them in the ground willy-nilly all over the place. Up oh, popped these trees, delicious avocados came out, and it's like, why haven't we been doing this all along? Okay, so, um, uh, all right. I'm kind of, what I'm trying to get at is, is to say, like, do you want to add texture to the landscape? Which is usually what we, what I advocate because I'm trying to suggest to people to be able to make microclimates and things of that nature. But, yeah. um, you on the other hand, I'm kind of thinking like maybe you don't need these microclimates or. I feel like it kind of already has microclimates with all these trees already. Um, I just need to learn what to put where. <laughs> Let's and do the research, I guess. Let's suppose for a moment that you made a berm, and let's say it's ten feet tall, um, and uh, it ran east-west. So on one side of the berm, it's going to get more sun. On the south side of the berm, it's going to get more sun—not a lot more, but some. And on the north side of the burn, it's going to get less sun. And so on the south side of the burn, 
it's going to be warmer. And on the north side, it's going to be cooler. It's possible that some of the things that you're growing might appreciate one side more than the other side. You will have added diversity. Now I'm going to pretend that this berm that you made has a little bit of a curve to it. In fact, it's got a little bit of a wobble to it, left and right. And it's curvy. And so now some spots are really cold and some spots are really hot because of the curve. And there's some spots are going to get morning sun and some are going to get afternoon sun although the morning sun is sun and the afternoon sun is clouds. So there's all kinds, There's you've introduced diversity to the landscape through earthworks. By a berm, yeah, interesting. So um, the other thing is with the berm, the tops are going to be drier and the bottoms are going to be wetter. Hmm. And some of the things you're trying to plant are going to be plants that, originated in a swamp, like onions. Great. And other plants that you're going to plant do not like wet feet, and they will rot if they're in anything that's too wet, and so they'll appreciate the stuff that's at the top. Up in the Mediterranean plants up top. Exactly. Things that, because you're going to get the same amount of rain all the time, but some of the things are like, I don't mind the rain, but I cannot tolerate having wet feet. Mm-hmm. So now sometimes your berm, and I'm going to pretend your berm is a hundred feet long. And then for about 10 feet of your berm, you put a bunch of logs and branches and stuff like that inside of it. That's what we call a hubu culture. That's why I was going to ask what the berms are made of. Is it just like the sheet mulch beds, kind of the same premise? I'm thinking it's dirt. <laughs> because the other thing is, is that it's like what you want is some high spots and some low spots. So wherever your path is going to be for walking next to this berm, that's where you're going to dig and you're going to plop it onto the berm. But I'm suggesting that maybe there's this 10-foot section that's not just dirt, but it's dirt. And on the inside is going to be woody bits. This is a hugel culture. And so the woody bits will rot and help to build soil. And I think that most of your growies are going to like that, but a few of them are not going to like that. A few of them are going to prefer a straight, sandy soil. And so what I'm suggesting is, is that out of this 100 feet, you might have 10 feet that contains woody bits and 10 feet, that's going to contain organic material, but it's finer than woody bits. And then 10 feet that doesn't contain any of that. And then, then 10 feet that's back to woody bits again. Now you've got diversity in the shape of this berm, and you have diversity on what is inside of the berm. Mm -hmm. different plants will enjoy different things. So as you start planting all of your gardens all over these berms with the the stuff that likes the drier stuff at the top and the wetter stuff at the bottom, 
you'll start to find that different things do better at different points because some of them like the woody bits and some of them do not. Mm-hmm. I like Ta-da! that. It's like extreme microclimating. <laughs> um, yeah, let's say it's that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think we're starting to run out of time. Okay. But do you have, like, I, I know I have barely touched your list of questions. <laughs> but, like, if you're going to shake your questions up and then pick out your favorite one that's left over, what's one that's left? Mm. Well, I think you kind of addressed it, but I guess, like, I don't know. What would you do with the front yard area? Well, just open, vast, you know, area of full sun. Should I leave it as like a yard or like, should I do something with it? I just have so much land and I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I should actually utilize that or just leave it. All right. Um, I'm going to say if, if I were there and I, I'm, I get to do whatever I want and I've got this patch of ground like what you've just described. I would say I'm going to make, (laughs) I'm, I, without even seeing it, I know what my answer already is. Okay. I'm going to make eight different berm-like shapes, like what I just described. And each one is going to be about 30 to 40 feet long. Each one's going to have a different weird curve to it. And they're going to be in a collection of interesting shapes because it's right next to the house. This is my permaculture zone one. This okay. is, this is where whatever grows there is going to get the most gardener's love and the best fertilizer for any plant is the gardener's shadow. And so these are the plants that are going to get the most attention from the human being gardener. And so I want to make something so that because I believe in adding texture to the landscape. I'm going to want to make these interesting curves. I might even come up with some sort of artistic vision of what these curves, you know, work themselves into. But I also kind of believe that if I'm inside the house and I look out to the garden, I kind of like the idea that the curves kind of all point generally towards the window that I might look out of because then – When I look out the window, I believe I will see a grander jungle than if I'm looking at one of those broadside. Does that make sense? Yes. I love the idea of looking out the window and seeing a more magnificent garden jungle that I, that is, that is mine. That is what I care for. And it's like, so, so I like the curves. But I also want the curves to kind of wiggle their way towards that window. This is what I like. This is what I would do. Okay. So now I've got the dryer at the top, the moisture at the bottom, and I've kind of got an interesting place to go where I could go and wander in between my little berms that are about seven to eight feet tall, and I can uh, almost not see the house at certain times. Fact. If I do this all the way around the house, or at least like 
maybe not between the house and the water, because I kind of feel like when I look out from the house to see the water, I want to see the water. But if I did through the rest of the house, does my house almost become invisible due to my garden jungle? Gotcha. And so have I added an aesthetic that's a gardener's aesthetic to this property where it's kind of like when somebody is looking towards my house, they don't see a house at all. They see a gardener's jungle. The greenhouse in the middle. <laughs> so that would be the, the, the thing I pursue. Now, I have a request that's a last request. And, and that is that I want to go and look at your poultry enclosure. Oh, you want to see the birds? Well, <laughs> they've been of. talking this whole time. Sort of. What I, what I want to see is this enclosure that you have. So now, a lot of people will do what they call a chicken moat around their garden. And that is yeah, where they'll, what I have. <laughs> does it go all the way around the garden? Yeah, it's a chicken run that goes all the way around it. Okay. And then I, I, what I usually do is I point out that the, that the material that they use is field fence, but I believe I saw in the video that you sent me earlier, it's not field fence. It's, it's more of a square mesh. Can we get close enough that we can see the fencing material that you use? Oh, the cattle wire? Okay, so it is pressure treated, but I'm not putting anything in the ground that I'm going to eat near okay. the pressure treated wood or nothing three feet. And All then right. this is the cattle wire, which is, I forget. Um, it looks like it's kind of a half by an inch. All right, all right, all right. So now, um, and maybe I, when I saw the video, I, I got the wrong idea. There it is. There's the turkeys. Hello, turkeys. So it, it is, it is kind of a field fence. And so now, um, now look at the gate. Let's look at the gate for a second. I want to look at, so now the gate, you've got kind of a hardware cloth. And so it's a bunch yeah. of squares that are like, uh, half inch by half inch squares. Okay, and I think what happened was, is I came to the conclusion that that was the material that was used for the entire thing, which would be psychotically expensive. But yeah, that, and I forget why he wanted to do that for the door exactly. Um, I, I don't know if it was just aesthetics or or what, but okay, all right. So the stuff that you have on the rest of it is a field fence. And this is what I normally make fun of because um, – and, and it looks like it's a little smaller than the typical field fence. So maybe it's like inch and a half by three and a half instead of two inches by four inches. And the reason why I point it's that out mm-hmm. – The reason why I point that out is because most of the chicken moats that I see, and yours may or may not be included in this, um, are something that I rename as – Weasel feeders. <laughs> they just pop right through. The weasels can squirm their way through and then wipe out all the chickens. And so, oh, they, yeah. and then it seems like I'll be presenting somewhere and somebody will say, well, I do that. And I've had it for over a year now. And I have never had a problem like what you described. So I think you're full of shit. And then about three months later, I'll get an email from that same person saying, we just got hit by weasels. 
Oh, no. Well, my bane of my existence here is raccoons, and so they can't get through any of that. What they do is they climb over the top, and they've chewed through my bird netting, and then they go in the garden, and they eat whatever they want and mess with everything. So technically, I should have had the cattle wire on top, too, but it's like, am I really going to do that? And then you're going to limit, like, Birds get, I don't know. It's just. Yeah. No, 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 no. Everything you're saying makes it's tricky. With raccoons, yeah. I, the thing that I suggest is that, um, uh, that you run a single strand of electric along the top and uh-huh. make, make sure that it is an extremely hot pop. Because if it's a, if it's not very hot pop, the raccoons will touch it. And then they'll like go, wow, that hurt. And, uh, and they'll stare at it and they'll be like, okay, how am I going to beat this? Whereas if it's an extremely hot pop, then they're on the ground staring at the sky and like, what just happened? I almost died and they're going to clear out. They're going to stay away. And so. it won't, it won't affect the birds because they have to be touching the to top touch- of air and the, Right. Cattle at the same time. So then basically. Because the birds will stay up there too is the only thing. I do let them free range sometimes. Oh. And and they'll fly up and try to perch up there. Okay. Then it would zap them as well. (laughs) All right. So you've got some choices to make. Uh, I think I just let the raccoons eat and deal with it. (laughs) So um, now, of course, another thing to throw into the mix here is is that a person might be tempted to um, kill or trap the raccoons. But the problem is with that is that raccoons are very territorial. So then um, what you want is you want to convince your raccoon to not go into the space you want them to stay out of. And then they'll maintain the territory and stay out of your space. So it's possible that what you're going to do is that when – your turkeys are free ranging. You turn the electric off, mm. and then when you, when they're not free ranging, which is like nighttime. Yeah, that's when that's when the raccoons go. And you turn it back on, and then the raccoon comes and is like, "I'm not going anywhere near that thing." I tried that once, and once was enough. Yeah. So the raccoons get the idea of leaving you alone and steering clear. Smart. And at the same time protect their territory so other raccoons don't come in and try the system as well. And just do the same thing. Gotcha. In case you ever forget to plug that back in. <laughs> All right. We are past time. But, um, okay. Sarah, I hope that that was worth it to you. Can you send me a link, um, even if it's something you've read or if you have a book, like, to teach me about berms a little bit more? Hmm. I would say that the best book on that is going to be, in fact, it's an excellent book for you, is going to be Sepp Holzer's Permaculture. I, I recommend Sepp Holzer's Permaculture for okay. uh, anybody that's got more than two acres. Okay. And he does talk about berms in there, and he has a lot of awesome and fascinating stuff about berms. Okay. Um, awesome. We also have like a 21 podcast review of Sepp Holzer's Permaculture. So it's the closest thing. That's the highlights? Uh, not the highlights. We go into okay. all the details. 
but I mean, 21 podcasts is a lot of podcasts. Yeah. Um, but that's the closest thing you can get to an audio book, I believe. Okay. If that's, if you're into that kind of thing. But yes, I'm on Audible and I listen to Sustainable World Radio and all. <laughs> okay. 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 So it might be worthwhile to try our 21 podcast review or, you know, even better or both. I'll get the 21 podcast review and get Seth Holzer's permaculture. That's going to be, I think, for people that are on uh, less than two acres, I think I generally recommend Toby Hemingway's Gaia's Garden. Um, and then for people that are on uh, two acres or more, I recommend Sepulcher's Permaculture. Um, okay. So it might be worth and it. They do, it does talk a lot about burns there. Is that, is that good enough, or do you still need me to say yeah, it? Yeah, spell it? Sorry. I, I don't know if you're saying... Spell Sepulcher, is that what you're saying? So uh, it's the name of a dude. Okay, it's his name. Okay. His first name is Sep, S-E-P-P. Okay. And his last name is Holzer, H-O-L-Z-E-R. Okay, perfect. Got it. All right. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Sarah. I thought that was a good time. I'm sorry I don't know Florida as well as you might like, but I think I might have been of a little bit of help. Yes, you gave me some ideas. Oh, good. All right. Okay. Bye. Good one. Bye. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.